tonight is the birth site of my mother who <coughs> passed away two years ago. Uh, Riva Bas Ravze Wolf, and I want to dedicate this year in her memory. She passed away on Yutches Teves Tovshin Dalad Mem. May the, uh, the merit of the shear, may it be a schus for Hanishama and Ganid. I was asked to give a shear on meditation. And uh, the truth is that when I first was asked to give a shear meditation, I thought to myself that there seems to be a lot printed on meditation, a lot of uh, recent, uh, recent, form, recent books coming out on meditation. And uh, I wasn't sure what I could contribute, you know, really to the discipline or the doctrine of meditation. I thought perhaps most people who had heard lectures on it or uh, had attended the uh, shurim on it, I know the people who, uh, who espouse it, who teach it and so on, Jewish meditation in quotes, um, I thought probably they knew most of it and, you know, what was really I going to add. Uh, on further research, I took a look at what's available and um, I, I feel that there's a good deal, there's a lot of room for confusion in the area of meditation. So I thought perhaps I could make some kind of a contribution toward an understanding of meditation. Now, I don't know the background of most of the people here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak in English. And I'm going to use Hebrew words, but every time I use a Hebrew word, I'm going to say it in English. Okay, I don't, wanna, I don't want to uh, um, detract or hamper myself with English expressions, especially when many expressions can only be said in, in Hebrew. So I'm going to stick to the Hebrew, but I will always say it again in English, so you'll always know what I mean. <coughs> now, um, <coughs> there's a lot of material I want to cover tonight. And the big question is if I can do it in two and a half hours. If I run over, I hope people forgive me. And, uh, you know, uh, just in the, uh, they will be motivated to hear perhaps the, uh, the rest of the shear, because I, I don't know if I can make it in two and a half hours. Now, <coughs> meditation is a vast topic. The truth is that meditation is really filled with a lot of confusion and ambiguity. And when I ask myself, why do people get confused about meditation, I more or less arrived at four reasons. And if a person doesn't have a grasp of these four areas, then the truth is you will be confused in terms of meditation. You may think you know meditation. You may have some kind of understanding, but you won't really grasp what the doctrine, what meditation is really all about. Now, I've divided basically into four areas, that the lack of understanding or knowledge in these four areas is why people don't seem to really understand meditation. There's what I call the conceptual difficulty. The first difficulty or confusion that people go under is conceptual. <coughs> what exactly is meditation? What's a good definition for meditation? Not only that, how does meditation differ from other similar terms that we find? For instance, concentration, contemplation, or just plain thinking and deliberation. If people say, I'm going to go to a meditation chair, so 
people look at that person and say, what do you mean meditation, Shia? What is meditation? What are you going to do? Turn on some new aspect of your brain? What are you going to do in meditation, Shia, that you don't do normally? So what we really have to understand is, what is meditation and how does it differ from other commonly used ter terms? <clears throat> now, another question in the conceptual difficulty is, what does meditation achieve? Why is it used? What exactly can it do for us? What did it do for people who used it for many years? This also is a difficult question and has to really have a good clarification. That's the conceptual difficulty. The concept, the construct of medita meditation itself, what is it? The next area of confusion I felt that people have is what's called the relationship confusion or difficulty. What does meditation have to do with Judaism? I ask you. First of all, the mainstream Judaism, most of the people today who are Orthodox Jews have never heard of meditation in the context of Judaism. And even if they have, they seem to repudiate it. They reject it. It's not for us. Not only that, the only ones who seem to engage in meditation are fringe groups, especially groups who have had some kind of contact with the Eastern practices, the Eastern esoteric doctrines. If that's the case, then it seems that meditation belongs to the East. So then why are we contaminating Judaism with the meditation? If meditation seems to be clearly from the East, then why is meditation being used as some kind of device? Why are we integrating meditation when it seems basically to be a foreign idea, a foreign practice? For instance, yoga or Zen, these are the doctrines of the East that are famous for its meditation. What are we doing with meditation? So that's the relationship. What is the relationship between meditation and Judaism? Is there any real such relationship? Or did somebody wake up one morning and said, you know, I feel I have to meditate. I might as well make it Jewish, because if I don't make it Jewish, it's going to be an awful big guilt trip. Is that what it is? And then, of course, everybody followed, because it seemed like a good idea at the time. That's the question. What is the relationship of meditation to Judaism? In addition, if meditation is truly something Jewish, if it has a stamp of kashras, then the question then is, how does it fit into Judaism? Exactly how does meditation fit in the conceptual framework of Judaism, the scheme that Judaism demands people to know. Where does it fit? Where is it coming out of? How do we attempt a conceptual integration of meditation? If it, assuming it has a relationship with Judaism. The next question is if meditation is somehow conceptually integrated in Judaism, then what does Judaism do with meditation? What does it do with it? What are the goals or objectives? that Judaism uses meditation for. Not only that, but the goals of meditation as espoused by Judaism, assuming there is, how does it integrate with the structure or the existential structure that Judaism says is the philosophical basis of reality? What does it do 
in terms of what's called the panemius of the Bria, the inner workings of creation. What does meditation do? This is all the difficulty or the question that arises in what's called the relationship difficulty. The next difficulty is what's called <clears throat> differentiation difficulty. <clears throat> There's a confusion. How does meditation, assuming that it's a Jewish doctrine, how does it differ from the East? See, now we get stuck. Before we thought it would come from the East. But once we pull it away from the East, then we got a bigger kasha, a big question. What does meditation in Judaism have to do with the East? What is the difference? Is it the same, or are there major differences? Not only that, Judaism has its own way of looking at everything because it's an all-encompassing religion. It's an all-encompassing theoretical framework of reality. How does Judaism look at yoga's framework? <coughs> now that's an interesting idea. Forget about what's the difference between Judaism and yoga. Most people, you know, if they begin to talk about that, they'll just walk away and leave it there. But I'm going to dare something even more. How do we, who understand Hashkafa, hopefully, Jewish philosophy, how do we look at yoga? How do we explain their experiences? They got gurus saying that they achieve samadhi, which is their ultimate state. And they have different kinds of experiential um, uh, things going on, ecstasy and joy and union and so on and so forth, which I'll explain later. Oh, how does that fit? Are we going to assume that all the gurus are crazy? Or is there some kind of a valid basis for their experience? So that's another question that I want to ask in the difficulty of differentiation. Also, as more I propose to this year, to some of the people here, what does meditation have to do with martial arts? Uh, how did it get involved? And uh, what was the major contribution? What is the significance of meditation to martial arts? That's last but not least. That is the third difficulty. The fourth difficulty is what's called the historical difficulty. <coughs> There's a tremendous confusion, historically speaking, about meditation. If meditation existed in Judaism, why did it disappear? Where is it? Not only that, why did it appear among the Goyim, among the non-Jews? Disappeared from us, and it appeared by them. And if you look, which you'll see later, I can get to it, you'll see that at the same time it disappeared from us, it appeared by the Goyim, which is an interesting phenomenon. So that's the question. <clears throat> also, when will it reappear again? And what can we basically utilize meditation for? That's it. That's what I'd like to try to answer tonight. <clears throat> I hope I have the time. But uh, I think if everybody sticks around, we'll get to the end of it, you know? As you can see, um, either, uh, either I'm going to deal with it in an adequate way, or I'm just crazy for undertaking something like this that's obviously very extensive. But I think that if you people understand the differences or all these confusions, the conceptual difficulties, the relationship difficulty, the differentiation difficulty and the historical difficulty, if you really understand that, you will know what meditation is. Now, a disclaimer. This is not a sheer in teaching how to do meditation. Many of the ideas of how to do meditation will become apparent from the sheer. But 
this is not a shira which is based on or geared to teach you actually how to do meditation. Right now, it's far more important to understand what is meditation. Okay? Now, in order to answer these questions, we have to travel over a wide journey. We have to cover different areas in Judaism, obviously, because there's no one area that's going to answer these questions. First area we're going to have to cover is what is the design of Judaism? What is the internal framework of Judaism? Okay? In other words, how do we understand really what Judaism is all about? We're going to have to know that first, because we'll never understand what meditation is if we don't know what Judaism is from an internal principles standpoint. The second area is what is the task of man based on the design of creation? What does a person have to do? Is meditation connected to that task? That's going to be the second area we're going to have to investigate. The third area of our investigation is going to be discussion on what is the self, what is the mind, and what is the structure of man as he is his ontological structure. And we're going to have to know that too. The next area is we're going to go into the meditation technique. What is it and how is it differentiated? <coughs> After that, we're going to go into Jewish meditation. Okay? But really Jewish meditation. Where does it really come from and where did we see it in Judaism? Then after that, I'm going to go into yoga, which is really the classic and most representative of all the Eastern doctrines that have meditation, especially Raja Yoga. And I'm going to go into yoga and examine what yoga is, what it is not, how does it differ from Judaism. And last, I'm going to go into the history of meditation, why it disappeared, and so on and so forth. So we have a lot of areas to cover. So without further ado, I'm going to begin. This is the area called the design, the internal design of creation. Now, you're going to hear a lot of ideas tonight, okay? A lot of it perhaps will be new. So uh, just bear with me. I'm going to try to explain it as well as possible. But it's going to be what's called an intellectual trip because a lot of ideas are going to be covered in order to answer most of these questions. <clears throat> There is a Sefer Habahir, a Kabbalistic text, written by Rabbi Nechun Yeben Akona, who is a, uh, one of the uh, Tanoim. The Bai is a very strange statement. The Bai says that, what are, how do we call the future world? We call it Olam Habo, right? Now, if you think about it, Olam Habo, if you ask yourself the translation of Olam Habo, what will you answer? The world to come? No. If it meant the world to come, it should have said Olam Sheyavoy, the world that will come. Olam Sheyavo, the world that will come. But it doesn't say that. It says Olam Habo, the world that came. You see? That's what the Bahia says. That's a very interesting concept, and it's incredibly significant. What that says is that when we say Olam Habo, we are saying the world that came. We're not referring to the world that will come. What we mean is that the world that came will come again. Therefore, we say Ulam Habo. Now, that means that when the Rabbani Shalom created the universe, 
he created Olam Habo first. Then he turned Olam Habo into Olam Hazer. That's right, into Olam Hazer. And it is our task to reconvert Olam Hazer back into Olam Habo. That's a new concept for most people. But that's exactly what it is. If you're wondering where Olam Habo is, don't look any further. It's here. But it is not the same existential plane that we know as this world. Somehow, the task of the Jew, and originally was the task of all mankind until they lost it, the task of the Jew is to reconvert Olam Hazed, this world, back into Olam Habo. It is our task. That tells us, first of all, that the setup of this world was created with a deficiency. The Rabbanishim created Olam Habo, he converted it into Olam Hazer, and it is our task to, re to reconvert it into Olam Habo. And that tells us also another interesting thing. We are responsible for our own Olam Habo. If we don't reconvert Olam Hazer back into Olam Habo, there won't be any Olam Habo. We are responsible. We are the cause of Olam Habo. That's what it means. Now, <clears throat> the Rabbanishim decided to create a, a universe. And he decided that he would be the experience that man would enjoy in the universe. Now, that means that Olam Habo is really a place where we experience God. Now, what the Rabbanishim did was very interesting. He took his most fundamental idea in the way he relates to the universe. He created the universe, everything in it, <clears throat> all spiritual beings, all physical beings. In other words, <clears throat> he is the source of our being. And what he did was a very interesting thing. He said, you know, if I am going to be their experience in Olam Habo, then their task will be to uncover me. So what I'll do is very simple. I will hide the fact that I am the ultimate cause of this universe, that I am the supreme master of this universe. I'm going to hide that, conceal it. And it will be man's task to figure out who God is. That's what the Bershom did. He concealed what's called his yichudoi, his unity, his enil muvadoi, the fact that God is the only thing that really is. And therefore, he brought everything else into existence. He concealed that. And he allowed man the task to figure out who God is. Now, to the exact extent that man figures out who God is, that is exactly how much of God he will enjoy in Ilm Habo. See? It's a meter connected meter, a measure for measure. <clears throat> to the exact amount that man figures out what the relationship of God is to the universe, the world, he will enjoy that revelation, that belief, that understanding in Ilm Habo. Now, as such, the revolution did something very interesting. <clears throat> he did not create one world. He created two basic different worlds. One is a physical world, and the other is a spiritual world. But what the revolution did is he created divisions in the spiritual world. What does that mean? The revolution created what's called five manifestations of his yichud. The first existential plane that's really what it is. It's an existential plane that is different than other existential planes. The first existential plane is called Odom Kadmoin, without going into why. On that plane, if you were on that plane, 
of existence, you would perceive God absolutely everywhere. There would be no concealment at all that God, what God's relationship is with the universe. Absolutely no concealment. That is the first existential plane called Odom Kadwain. The second plane is where he began introducing what's called hester, concealment. Concealment of the truth of who he really is. And that oilum is called oilum atzilus. And it's called Eitzel, Atzilus, Eitzel, because it is next to God. Because Adam Kadman, which is the first existential plane, is really a total revelation of God as he can appear to his creations. Remember, God is unknowable. But as we can understand God, we can only understand it best in Adam Kadman. That is a complete revelation of what he is as far as a created entity can understand. Now, the second world was Ilmatzilis. In other words, it was less of his unity. It was a greater already, it was less Yichud manifestation. It was a greater, it was the beginning of what's called a transformation of his Yichud into plurality and multiplicity. At that world, the Rabbanishim appears different. We don't see him anymore as totally, uh, un, uh, totally pervading all existence. We don't have the transparency of a divine essence that permeates all. It's already hidden. Now, the next world, after Oilem Atzilis, is called Oilem Bria, the world of creation. That world has even less of the transformation of the Rabbanu Shalom, or rather of the manifestation of God Yichud, and has even more of a concealment of who God is. Then he created another world, a third world, and that is... <coughs> He created Oilem Yitzira, or rather it's a fourth world, Oilem Yitzira, the world of formation. That world is inhabited, by the way, by angels and, and other spiritual beings. They have even less of a perception of who God is. And the last world he created was our humble abode, and that is called Oilem Asiya. And in this world, his transformation of his Yichud is totally absent. In other words, we do not see God at all around us. We have to believe in God. And of course, the one who inhabits this world, of course, is man. Therefore, we see that there are five worlds, each one having five different degrees of the manifestation of the yichud, or the unity, or the, the uh, tr uh, transparency of the divine essence. And in each world, each time his yichud was transformed into a greater hester concealment, or plurality, or multiplicity. Now, it is important to know that a being on any level only comprehends the unity of God from his level and below. He cannot understand God from above. It's beyond him. Just like we have no understanding of an existential plane right beyond us, which is the Olim Yitzirah, some Amalek, for instance, who is on Olim Bria, has no conception of what Olim Matzilis is. That's important to understand. Now... We see also that there are four levels of the concealment of God. In Odom Kadmon, there is no concealment. But in the other four levels of uh, Atsilus, Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya, there is now concealment of God's essence. Now, the only way man can break through the barrier, by the way, to break through the barrier and visit the other worlds 
is an intrusional phenomena. There is a phenomena that we can do. There's a way of doing it. You know what that way is called? Nevuah, prophecy. Prophecy is an intrusional phenomena. It means that whoever was having a, 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 an experience of prophecy, he was able to break through this world and actually perceive what was going on in a higher existential plane. Now, <clears throat> what is a system? What is the concept of a system? A system is a group of components that interact with each other to produce a specific goal. That's what the definition of a system is. It is a group of different elements, each interacting, and what unifies the entire system is the common goal that they share. Now, that is the definition of a system. A monolithic system, by the way, is a system where all the components of the system is really made up of one single substance. But somehow they all are different. There's some kind of an individuating factor that makes each component different. But the truth is they all have the same system. You know what a good example of a monolithic system is? I'm sure everybody knows. Everybody knows the chip? The integrated circuit chip? Chip is a monolithic system. That's why it was such an incredible breakthrough. They had a very hard time. It was a circuit. And how in the world can they fit 4 million or 2 million diode resistors and capacitors and transistors in one little thing as big as a dime? It's impossible. So somebody came up with a brilliant einfall in 1958. He noticed that silicon, that silicon, if you give it different levels of impurity, it actually becomes different things. It becomes a diode, and if you give it a little more impurities, less, whatever it is, it becomes a um, resistor. So he figured out, we don't have to make, we don't have to bunch up a whole bunch of things in that thing. Let's just make one silicon thing and just give it different impurities at different levels and presto, you have a, you have a circuit. The chip was a perfect example of a monolithic system. It's really a lot of components, but the truth is they're all silicon. The only thing that differentiates them is what's called the impurities. They dope impurities in it. Now, <coughs> you'll notice that the creation is also a monolithic system. We all, there are billions and billions of different things, but the truth is, in us is all the divine essence. We are an emanation of God. The truth is that we're all the same, but there are certain individuating factors. So we are really a monolithic system. And you know what the purpose of our system is? To expose the fact that we're monolithic. That we have to see that behind all of us is really a God who is ultimately the source of everything. So the, 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 the entire purpose of the monolithic system is to expose that idea. Again, to expose the idea of Yichud, that fact that God is underneath everything. Now, as a result of that, what the Roshim decided is a very interesting idea. He said, okay, this world is a barrier to us comprehending that he is the source of all being. This physical world. So you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to take the materialism and actually change it. It's what's called zikuch, to purify the world, to remove the materiality or the physicality of this world. This is what the Rebbe wants us to do. To actually change the physical substance of this world, then it will no longer be a barrier. In other words, to undo or to reverse the transformation of the original yichud. The yichud transformed itself into plurality or concealment. He wants to undo that in this world. 
That is why, by the way, Judaism is a religion where you must interact with the world. You ever wonder why Judaism is a ritual religion? Why it stresses you got to get in there? You can't run away to some ashram somewhere and meditate or whatever. You've got to do mitzvahs. You've got to interact with the world. Why? Because the job is to transform this world, take away the physicality, and then it will truly change. That, of course, is all the idea of changing Ulam Hazeh back into Ulam Habo. In other words, every time we do a mitzvah, we change potentially the world in truth from a physical to a spiritual universe. Now, you may ask, what do you mean? I do mitzvahs. I don't see a change. And the, re the answer to that is that after the sin of Adam Harishan, the first man, things changed. Man can only change the world potentially, but not actually. So therefore, every time you do a mitzvah, you get a credit. And you build up all the credits over your lifetime. And after 6,000 years, after the Yemaisa Mashiach, God will destroy this world, create a new one that can be retransformed based on the mitzvahs that you've done. You see, that is what Tchiyas Yemaisa is really all about. We come back into the body and retransform the physical body back into a body that is so pure that the neshama just radiates right out of it. And we can all, everybody can see everybody else as pure souls. And there's no barrier anymore. There's no physical barrier that does not allow you to see who you are or who somebody else is. That is what Tchiyas Amesim is all about. That is what Oilam Hab is all about. It's this world all of a sudden becomes retransformed based on the amount of credits you have, which is the mitzvahs, and all of a sudden the universe is like a universe which is made of glass. It's an example where you see the actual soul shine right out. That's what Ulam Haba is. And of course God shines right in. And there's no barrier anymore. And that is the universe of infinite joy. Now, how does man do this? What the Rebbe decided then is he will give a task to man. He will give a task to man based on the dimensions of man. What are the dimensions of man? Man exists in four planes. Man has a mental plane. He has an intellect. Man has a physical plane. He has a body. Man also has an emotional plane. And man also has a plane where the self is devoid of the body. There's a self. We are all sitting in a body. That's the self. What the Russian wants is that we should be oivet. We should work on each aspect of those dimensions. <coughs> in the intellectual sphere, in the mind sphere, the mental sphere, the thing that is we are supposed to work on is, of course, learning Torah. In the physical sphere, the body sphere, it's the mitzvahs that we engage in. That's the body's way of expressing an idea, which I'll mention. In the emotional sphere, we have to work on our midos, on our characterological traits. But there's one more sphere. There's a sphere of the self. The Rabbanishlam wants man to work on himself, devoid of intellect, devoid of body, and devoid of emotion. What does that sound like? Meditation. Okay. That's where we begin to see the interface between meditation and Judaism. I just want to say one idea. You may ask, what is, what is Torah and mitzvahs 
and working on your midas have to do with reconverting Olam Hazer back into Olam Habor. Because we know if you reconvert Olam Hazer back into Olam Habor, what you're really doing is allowing the divine essence to be revealed again to man. How does a mitzvah do that? And the answer is, a mitzvah is what's called edus yechudai. When you do a mitzvah, I'll give you a simple example. Let's say you're in the morning, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, and you got to get up for minyan. And you're not sure. It's raining outside, it's freezing outside. It just snowed. It's two feet of snow outside, right? Now, you don't want to get up to minyan. You know that. But then you're an observant Jew, and uh, you dub with minyan usually, and now you're going to have a conflict. What is the conflict you're going to have? It exists on three levels. The first level of the conflict is, should I get up to minyan, or should I keep sleeping? That's the obvious conflict. But that's not the real conflict. The second, con the, the second level conflict is, should I get up to minyan, because I want to do what his will is, or should I sleep and do what my will is? So it's a battle of wills, not a battle of behavior, right? But there's a third level, and that's really what the statement is, depending on what you say. Should I get up for minion, behaviorally, because I want to do his will? Why do I want to do his will? Because he's the only thing that exists. So what's, what does it mean to have an opposing will? doesn't make sense. So what I'm really saying is then, I will get up to minion to do his will because there's nothing else that is really, or nay. I want to sleep because I want to do what I want to do. You know why? Because I also have an independent existence. Do you notice that in the mitzvah you express the statement, God is the only one or I exist also with God together? Therefore, if you get up to minion and you therefore testify, I will get up to minion, do his will because he's the only one that exists. Therefore, since you perceive that God is the ultimate source, that is zikuch. Therefore, you will change Olam Hazeh back into Olam Abor to reflect that God is the only one that exists. It's Mida Kenegin Mida. The task is exactly the same thing as the reward. The mitzvah you say is God is the ultimate source of being. Therefore, I must do his will and get a familiar. To that extent that you declared his unity, his absolute supremacy, to that extent, you will change this world and into a world that you will feel or experience that supremacy in Ulam Habo. You see? It's literally measure for measure. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you don't get a familiar and you say, well, I want to sleep because I also exist, then you make the world more physical because the world now conceals more of the essence or the supremacy of God. Because you're saying, I also exist. In other words, you determine the truth of reality, your belief based on your behavior, learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, or working on mitzvahs, your behavior is what says, or what your behavior states your belief that God is the only one, or God is and I am also. And to that extent that you express, that is what you get, you see? So the task of man is exactly related to retransforming Oilam ha back into Oilam Habo. And the whole thing pivots around the unity of God. Okay? Now. <clears throat>
we now understand the constructs of basic Judaism, what do we see? That what Judaism really is, is that God created the universe devoid of his presence, devoid of, of his true nature or his true relationship to us. It is our task to figure out who he is. That is what Judaism is all about. Therefore, he gave us Torah, mitzvahs, working on mitzvahs, in order that we may express that idea. God is the only thing that exists, or Yeshid Mavadeh. Besides God, there's also me. I'm an independent existence. Okay? Now, therefore we have these mitzvahs. We now go on to another area. And that is, what is the spiritual construct? The spiritual component of a man, the essence of a man. Now, in order for man to correct or undo Oilam Hazeh into Oilam Habo, right? That's what we're saying it is. Man has to be a resident, a denizen of every single existential plane. Because if you live in that plane, you can affect the inhabitants and everything around you. If you don't, you cannot, you cannot affect it. Therefore, if man must reconvert this world into Ilm Habo, it doesn't mean this physical world. It means every single world has to be reconverted back into the highest level or existential plane. But the question then is, man doesn't relate to every plane. We only relate to the physical world. How is the Rebbe going to get around that? So the Rebbe does a very interesting thing. In order to overcome that problem, where man has to relate or be a resident of every existential plane in order to affect that plane and change it or take away its concealment to reveal again the divine nature, the Rebbe creates man of two different substances. <coughs> He gives man what's called a nefesh elyoyna, a higher soul, and this is spiritual. And he gives man a nefesh tachtoyna, a lower soul, a physical soul. Probably most people didn't know you have a physical soul, but you do. Man has a physical soul as well as an upper soul, a higher soul. Now, what, is these, what, what are these souls? The nefesh tachtoyna is a soul which is physical, really physical, but it is the most subtle form of physicality that you can find. It's extremely subtle. It's probably much more subtle than radio waves. Radio waves are physical, but they are extremely subtle, and you must have a receiver in order to pick them up. It's the same idea with, uh, with the uh, nefesh tachtoyna. It is an extremely subtle substance, very ethereal. Now, what is that nefesh tachtoyna? The answer is that the nefesh tachtoyna is really the mind. What is the mind? What is the mind of man? Well, the mind of man is the repository of all mental activities. It is the location where all mental phenomena take place. That's what the mind is. What happens in the mind? Well, we feel. When you have a feeling, that's a mental feeling. Because the self is located in the mind. Where are you all located? You're in your mind. 
The nefesh tachtoina is the seat of the soul itself. But the nefesh tachtoina is really the mental plane. We have feelings in that plane. We have an intellect. Thinking takes place on the mental plane. We have a memory on that plane. We have imagination on that plane. Not only that, we even will on that plane. Because what connects the self to the body? When you want to do something, what's the connection? You sit down and you want to get up. How is it that the self is able to say, get up, and you get up? What's the connection? The answer is the will. The will is some kind of a phenomena. Nobody knows. It is some kind of an experience, a phenomena, that somehow connects you to the body and it fires up the neurons of the brain. That's what the will is. And it exists again on the mental plane. Also what you feel in the mental plane is what's called sensations. You feel sensory sensations, what you perceive from the outside world, and you also feel bodily sensations. All these things are experienced on the mental plane. <clears throat> now, what the Rabbanishim did is he took a physical body, took the nefesh tachtoina, which is the mental experience, and placed it in the physical body, namely in the brain, because the brain is the seat of the nefesh tachtoina. And then what he did is he took the nefesh elyoina and he connected it to the mental sphere. So it comes out that all of us are in in, all of us are located in our heads. In other words, we all, are, we all exist or we function on a mental plane. Why? Because the nefesh alyoina, the upper soul, is really residing in the nefesh tachtoina, the mental plane. And the nefesh tachtoina resides in the body. That's the way it works. Now, therefore, if that's the case, then if we are connected to the nefesh tachtoina, which is the mental device that we have, the mental apparatus, the mind, and that itself is in the human body, we are obviously connected to el masiyah, which is this world. Therefore, we clearly can influence this world. Uh, I just want to mention something which I had not mentioned in context to a question. Bresha starts off with what? A base, correct? Why does it start off with a base? Now, there are many, many ideas and so on. But you now can uh, begin to appreciate an idea which is related here. The reason why Bracious starts off with a base, Bracious is the beginning of the Torah, which is really the beginning of what? Of the account of creation, because Bracious, or rather the entire Torah, is nothing more than an account of creation. So Bracious, then, is the beginning of the account. Base would be the first letter of the account, and that would tell us something about creation itself. It started on Bayes. Now, you know why it started on Bayes? Because there is two entities that will always be and never stop. It is not possible for there to be only one. There must be two. The two entities are God and a being that exists independent of him to be able to experience God. Because if man merged with God, in other words, if man uh, merged with, back with God, which is a source, there wouldn't be a being that would experience God at all. There's got to be what's called the zulosoi, somebody which is external to God in some way 
to have the experience of experiencing God. Therefore, Bayes means that there will always be two beings in Oil Mazen, Oil Mahabo, God and the soul that experiences God. And no matter what transpires, there always must be those two things. So that is the idea of Bayes based on what we now understand. Now, so I've explained so far that the human body is the goof. There is a mental phenomenon or mental entity, which is the nefesh tachtoina, which is placed in the body, and that accounts for the entire mental sphere. That is the mind. And that the self, which is the nefesh aloina, is placed in there. So therefore, we perceive the world, obviously, through mind. We think with mind, we see with mind, we feel with mind, okay? Everything is interpreted to the self through mind. Self cannot interpret anything except through mind, as long as self is connected to the human body. Now, but what is self? Now, I mentioned also that we now see that since man or self is in the sphere of this world, he now has an input in this world, and he can retransform this world. He's now connected. Now, the question is, what about man's connection to all the other spheres, the, all, all the other existential planes? Now, there we begin to see that man is more than just a nefesh tachtoina. That man self is a nefesh alyoina. The nefesh alyoina is, a, is an incredible idea that the Rav had, if I may use the expression. What the Rav did is rather than have a spiritual being that comes down into a mental construct, a mental uh, uh, domain, and then functions this way, what he's going to do is a very interesting thing. He's going to take the self and split it into five different parts. Now what does that mean? Self is indivisible, obviously. You can't, there's no such thing as one guy, two people peeking out of the same head. In the, in the same mind, the self is indivisible, okay? And self cannot be differentiated from, or self is differentiated from other selves. But in itself is indivisible. There's no such thing as a half self. Now, what the Russian did is he took the self and he somehow stretched the self through five, four, or rather five, five ulomas. He took the consciousness of self and he stretched the consciousness or the self itself through five different existential planes. Interesting. Which means that your consciousness, you exist in five different existential planes. That means there is a part of you that is in Odom Kadmoin, a part of you that is an Oilam Atzilus, a part of you that is an Oilam Bria, and it descends. A part of you that is an Oilam Yitzira, and you are an Oilam Asiya. Now, it means that potentially you can have consciousness on any single world that you are in. In some way, the Rabban Shalom extended the self, the consciousness of an individual, and he stretched it through all the Oilamas, every existential plane. Now, each part, of course, is connected. But it's really one entity, one entity that transverses all five existential planes. <clears throat> that means that the manifestation of self exists 
in all five oilomas, all five existential planes. And it is connected, therefore, to each one independently. And it can observe, and it's a resident of each world independently. It's an incredible thing. That means that man is distinct from every other being in two ways. First of all, he is the only one that is a spiritual self who inhabits a physical world. There's no, there's no, other, such, there's no other being. Either you're either physical or you're spiritual. There's no such thing as a spiritual and a physical together. Yet man's self is in the physical world. That's the first thing. And we know why, because the Rabbanishlam wants man to retransform, to interact with this world through mitzvahs and turn and so on, and retransform it by edus yechudai, right? Testimony that God is one, and then the world changes potentially, retransforms back into the revelation or the transparency of the divine essence in this world. But also, man differs in an, another way, very different, very unique. Man stretches. He's the only being that stretches straight through all the Olamas. No other being does. Angels only inhabit the second world, Olam Yitzirah. They don't stretch. They don't know what's doing in Olam Atzirah or Olam Bria. Serofim, okay, and those are the inhabitants of Bria, they don't know what's doing in Atzirah. Okay, you see? So therefore, man is the only being that stretches straight through and is the only being that inhabits or traverses one foot into the spiritual world and one fit to the f foot into the physical world. Incredible phenomena. Now, once man is connected, ego-wise, self-wise, at every single existential level, in some way that we don't understand, that means man can now correct every single existential plane, because he's connected to every one. That was a brilliant maneuver on the part of the Rabbani Shalom. That is how he overcame, <laughs> that is how he overcame the problem of how man is going to change all the Olamas back into Olam uh, Habo, or retransform it. Now, <coughs> at each point, the soul or the self is called something different. The self in Olam Asiya is called Nefesh. The general term is called nefesh el yoyno. Let's get our term straight. Nefesh el yoyno means the upper, higher soul, the spiritual soul. The nefesh el yoyno is a general term, and that's in contrast to the nefesh tachtoyno, which is the mental. But the nefesh el yoyno itself has five parts, as I'm saying. One part is called nefesh. The nefesh, which is a part of the nefesh el yoyno, is the part that resides in this world. We, who are all looking at each other, are nefesh, nefoshes. That's who we are. Our consciousness of self derives, our self derives from nefesh. We do not know the other worlds. We do not have an awareness of what is going on in the other worlds. We could if we knew the mechanism, but right now we can't. So we can only relate with one another as a nefesh el or rather the nefesh, as it resides in mental, or nefesh tachtoina, as it resides in guf. See? That's all we know. The soul, as it appears in Olim Yitzirah, okay, is called, not nefesh, but ruach, spirit. Because in that world, spirits lives, live. Angels, and so on. Ruach. So therefore, the self in the world of Yitzirah is called ruach. 
the world, the spirit or the soul in the world of, Nisha, of um, Bria is called Nishama, and sometimes the entire word for soul is Nishama, then it's used as a collective term. But just like Nefesh Elyoyna has a word Nefesh, which means only the self as it appears in the Elmasiyah, this world, world of action, because here's where we act to retransform. The, nefe- the Nishama also has uh, a specific term, the Nishama, which refers to Olam Bria. The self in the Olam Atzilis is called Chaya, life. And the self in Odom Kadmon is called Yechida, right? Yechida, very appropriate, isn't it? Where the Neshama merges with God. That is the source of all souls from the Rabbani in Odom, Odom Kadmon. Therefore, we in Odom Kadmon are called Yechida because it merges with the Rabbani Okay? Those are the divisions of the Nefesh Elyoyna. Now, therefore, the conclusion is that man can now, as a result of his interesting structure, he can now affect every single oilam, every single universe, every single existential plane that he exists in, because he exists in all planes. And the task of man exactly is to do that is to change every single plane into an idea or to retransform it back into a place where the essence, the true nature of the Rabbani Shalom is revealed. We have now completed the idea of the Judaic design. What is the design of Judaism? It's not panemius, which it really is. And the second uh, phase we have completed is the concept of what the Avodah is, and the different dimensions of Avoida and how Avoida inter- interfaces with the entire concept of retransformation. We also have gone through the third area, and that is the area of the structure of man, the self, the mind, the nefesh tachtoino, the nefesh alyoino, and so on. We are now up to what the shir is all about, and that's meditation. Uh, somebody asked me about uh, is the material drawn from the Ramchal and so on, and I answered that it is. Who is Rav Moshe Chaim Mutzatay? Rav Moshe Chaim Mutzatay was a very interesting person. He was an individual that was in direct line for publicizing the Pneumus of Torah, and he was one of his major. He was one of the major way stations in doing it. The basic system of Rav Moshe Chaim is nothing more than a, an expression of the system of Ari. The greatest, among the greatest Mikubolim that have lived in the last thousand years, the Ramchal numbers them, among them. The Vilna Goin said about Rav Moshe Chaim that <coughs> if he was alive, and this is the Vilna Goin, remember, who is among the greatest of the Achreinim, uh, if not... Uh, certainly the last thousand years. He said that if Rav Moshe Chaim Mutzate was alive in Italy, that's where he lived, he would walk from Vilna to Italy by foot. And he has never made that statement about any other man, for obvious reasons. Because everybody else would come from their town to Vilna by foot to learn from him. Yet that's what he made. When he received the manuscript of Rav Moshe Chaim Mutzate, of a certain sefer called the Adabamurim, he put on his Shabbos clothing when he got that manuscript. 
so obviously shows you what he held from Moshe Chaim Sata. There's a Vilna going. Um, I'll tell you one more idea about Ramesh Chaim Sata. Somebody once asked um, Rav Chaim Velozhin, who is one of the greatest Hamidim of the Vilna Gaon, he said that he started learning one of the form of the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Sata'i, the Sefer called Adiba Moram. And he says, he started learning the Sefer, and the Sefer is incredible. Why was it that people persecuted Ramchal? And he was. He was a Nirdaf. People persecuted him for whatever reasons. And uh, he writes, he asked that in a letter to Reb Chaim Velozhin. And Reb Chaim Velozhin answers him, he says, I'll tell you. I don't know why, I can't answer those questions. But I'll tell you one thing about what my Rebbe said about Rabbi Moshe Chaim Matzatoy. And his Rebbe, of course, is the Vilna Goyen. He said, and this, listen to what the Vilna Goyen said, which is an incredible statement. He said that the Ari, right, who is uh, probably among the greatest Mukubolim that ever lived, when he, his system is really consists of misholem, metaphors, all the terms that he uses, lights, uh, faces, emanations, these are really all metaf- more metaphors that refer to, t- to certain interpretive ideas. So he said that Rab Chaim Vital, who was the greatest Talmud of the Ari, he wrote everything down. He was not sure if Rab Chaim Vital understood the true interpretation of his Rebbe the Ari. I mean, that's what the Vilna Goyen is saying on Rav Chaim Vital. So then he says, but after a while I took a look and I saw in certain of this form that Rav Chaim Vital understood what the Ari really meant. The Rav Moshe Chaim Mutsati, the Ramchal, definitely understands, this is what he's writing, and he ends the letter and says, Baruch Hashem, thank God, so do I. This is the way he ends his letter. <laughs> this is a published letter, by the way. It shows you who Rav Moshe Chaim Mutsata was. And the main idea I wanted to say is the major ideas of the Ramchal is all Ari. The Rav Moshe Chaim Sate didn't move from the Ari. So the truth is that's really what it is, Kabbalah's Ari. Anybody else, you know, we're not responsible for any other interpretations, but this is the Ari and that's the end of it. Now, to go further, we now enter the area of meditation. We have an adequate understanding an adequate introduction to the area of what is the internal design of Judaism, what is the avoider, what is the task of man, also what are some of the constructs, how is man constructed. Now we can begin to understand meditation. Now, the mind has four mental states. There are four mental activities that go on. Now, of course, the mind has many other mental activities, but I'm going to pick four because that's really a hierarchy or a continuum, and the last one is called meditation. There are four terms that denote the four states or the four activities of the mind. The first term is called thinking. Thinking, just plain thinking. The second term is called concentrating. The third term is called contemplating, and the fourth term is called meditating. The mind does, can do four things. Now, there may be people who differ in my wording. They may say, well, what you say is contemplating is really concentration. It doesn't really make a difference. It's not so much the words that represent the phases or the states, it's the states that you must understand. Whether you want to call it contemplation or he calls it something else, it doesn't make a difference. 
Okay, because that itself is confusing. The main thing is you must understand what are the states that the mind is in that meditation is merely a part of. Okay, the first stage is called thinking. What is thinking? Now, the mental plane consists of many, many different <coughs> activities. It has, and I broke them down to five, okay? It has what's called sensations. It has sensations from the outside, because we perceive, we hear, and we see, and so on. It has sensory sensations, perceptual sensations. It also has bodily sensations, because even if you shut your eyes and you plug your ears, you're going to feel things in your body, maybe your stomach will growl, or something like that. You still have bodily sensation. You may feel a pain or whatever. And it has nothing to do with the external environment. Now, those are sensations. The mind also has three kinds of activities. One is called thoughts. The second is called images. And the third is called feelings. We feel, we think, and we see different things in our mind. If you shut your eyes, we see many things. And of course, the one that produces the images, of course, is the imagination. So those are sensations, perceptual and bodily, and mental activities either thinking, thoughts, images, or feelings. Now, when you think, what you're really doing is you're thinking about something, but everything else is trying to intrude itself in your mind. There's no focus, there's no direction. You're thinking about something, you're musing about it or pondering it, and you're feeling things, you're sensing things. It's like many, many things are competing for the available space that you have, and that available space is called awareness. You only have a limited amount of awareness, okay? Everything is competing for the awareness in the mind. By the way, awareness is also a faculty of mind. We are aware because we have a mind. Awareness itself is part of mind, okay? So, we, many, many different things are competing for the available space in the awareness sensations, feelings, thoughts, images, and so on. This is all going on while we're thinking. Now, <coughs> you may ask yourself, uh, now, the point is that it is very difficult to stop the thoughts, images, feelings, or, or sensations. It's very hard. Anybody tried, you see it's very difficult. Of course, why is it so difficult? And the answer is because, and this is important to know, self exists on two planes. There is a conscious you are conscious of things, and you are unconscious of things. The unconscious is nothing more than meaning that you're not conscious. The unconscious is not a place. It's not a location. Okay? It is really a, uh, it's an activity. It's a phenomenon. Anything which you're not conscious of is called unconscious. And just agav, the difference between the subconscious and the unconscious is is that anything you're not aware of at the present moment is subconscious because it can always be brought back to the unconscious, uh, to the conscious mind. If that which is not conscious cannot be brought back to the conscious mind because there is a mechanism called repression going on, then that material which is not conscious is called unconscious. See? Now you understand the difference. They're confused. <laughs> There's a lot of confusion between the two, but you know, once in a row for all, let's set the record straight. Now, now getting 
getting back to the idea, why is it, why is it that the, uh, why is it so difficult to control all these competing uh, activities for the space of awareness? And the answer is because you think that you know what you want, you make a big mistake. There's a part of you, <laughs> there is a part of you, by the way, that is willing. There's, a, there's part of yourself that has a desire that wills behavior. And you find yourself doing behavior, you don't even know why. That is the concept called the unconscious will. You are willing things that you are not even aware of. That is why you find yourself doing many, many times you find yourself doing things and you don't even know why you're doing it. That is the concept called unconscious motivation. And unconscious motivation exists, and Freud was the one obviously who based a great deal of his system on it. Unconscious motivation exists because you are not aware of what necessarily you are willing. Now, because you have an unconscious will, there are thoughts or there are desires of the will which is unconscious. And therefore all these thoughts, feelings and so on, are being fed in from the unconscious will. So you really have no control over them. You can only control that which you consciously want or think about. You could stop. But something which is projected into the awareness plane, and it comes out of nowhere, thoughts or feelings or images, those are coming, you should know, from the unconscious will. Okay, that is why it's so difficult to control these ideas. Because the unconscious will, which is really you, willing on a different plane, is competing for the same uh, plane of awareness. Now, that is what's called thinking. Now, I call thinking a weak intellectual state. That's my private term. Because it's thinking in a very weak way. There's so many things trying to compete into the mind. The next stage is called concentration. Now, you still have all, everything trying to compete there, but there's a difference. Theoretically, the person focuses his thinking apparatus and thinks about something in a controlled manner. It's a direction of thought. <clears throat> it's directed thinking, controlled thinking. It's where you think about an object, anything, exclusively for a certain amount of time and you really push out any other thought that comes in. But of course, there's always material that's going to be intruding. There's going to be mental activities and phenomena, productions from the unconscious will, still trying to get in. But it's a lot better than the thinking. I call that intense intellectual state. Because you're using the intellect to think, and it's much more intense. The, the concentration is controlled and directed. Now, that's the second state of mind. The third state of mind is called contemplation. What does that mean? You have to grasp this. It is when the individual has the ability just to have awareness, nothing else. There is no thought there, is, there are no sensations, either perceptual or bodily. That's out. Forget about how to achieve it. Just, just listen to what it is. There is no thoughts, no feelings, no images. The mind is a total blank, and I really mean total. The only thing that exists in the mind, or the only mental activity going on, is called awareness. 
That is called contemplation. That's all it is. It's awareness with no stimuli, no input whatsoever from the unconscious will. In other words, the person has achieved such a great control that he's actually able to cease, create a cessation in anything else but his awareness. I call that the contemplative state. In other words, the mind is involved in whatever it's involved and there's nothing extraneous intruding. Let's say the person is thinking about something or looking at something or visualizing an object in his mind. The only thing going on in his mind is the awareness of that object. There is nothing else happening. It's a very interesting state, very difficult to achieve. And by the way, at that stage, you, you, uh, a person uh, gets tremendous creativity because you're so wrapped up, you're so much into the object, there's nothing intruding that your creative faculties begin to stir up tremendously because you achieve a very intense knowledge of the thing that you're so aware of. And therefore, you begin to see it in different relationships and so on. It's very good for creativity. Now, that is what contemplation is. The last mental stage, mental uh, activity, is called meditation. Now, what's meditation? Sounds like we got rid of everything. We didn't. Meditation is a mental act. It's a, um, <clears throat> it is a mental activity. And what happens is, on one plane, it's similar to contemplation. Nothing is intruding on what the person is thinking. What does that mean? The person has no sensations, either bodily or perceptual, and he has no thoughts, feelings, or images, no mental activity. The only thing that he sees, or the only thing that his mind is on, is an object. Let's assume he's visualizing something. But there's a difference between that and contemplation. Whereas contemplation, the focus is on nothing else, a cessation of extraneous mental activity. In meditation, it's an intense focus of awareness. I call it focused awareness. It's not only removal or cessation of mental activity. It's an incredible awareness state where it's like a lens, where the ability to focus, to be aware, is magnified many, many times more than contemplation. In other words, it's a state where the experience that the individual is meditating on fills the entire field of awareness from one end to the other end. There is nothing else in that field. <coughs> it's a total mental involvement. Not only that, but <coughs> the mind is focused on a single experience, nothing else. It's what's called a heightened state of consciousness. And you may ask me, what is a state of, what does it mean to have a heightened state of consciousness? What that means is that there's an enormous degree of awareness or alertness of reality. The perception of reality, purely being aware, is intensified enormously. One's awareness is totally focused on the object. That is what meditation is. That's the meditative state. In other words, when you have succeeded in pushing everything out of the mind, excluding everything, and intensely focusing your mind only 
on the object that you're thinking or meditating about, that is meditation. But it's, in, it's a very extreme form of awareness. Now that has very great repercussions. You may say, so what? What's the difference if you are somewhat aware in contemplation or really aware in meditation? Because even, even uh, um, concentrating and thinking, there is awareness about a certain idea. What's the difference how much you focus? And the answer is that, now you'll understand it. Since man is connected to all the worlds, every place, okay, how do you connect with the world? The answer is your awareness. When you are aware of something, there is an existential hookup. There is an ontological connection between you and the object that you are thinking about that is beyond the physical. It's a metaphysical thing. And that comes from man's unique ability, or rather his unique state, where he's hooked up to every place. And he's hooked up far more than I said in the sheer, by the way. But I just... Uh, the awareness of a man is the way he hooks up to any spot. That is why when you do a mitzvah and you're thinking about something else, the mitzvah hasn't been performed. You know why? Or it has been performed very weakly or whatever. It's because the man is his awareness. If you take away his awareness, he's not a man. There's nothing there. In other words, the existential being of man is in his awareness. What he is aware of, that is where he's at. If he is not aware of it, he's not there. It's merely a body or robot doing an act. In other words, the essential existential essence of man is the awareness. Now obviously, the greater the focus, the greater is the hookup that you have to that which you are meditating on. Very important idea. Okay? And that's the idea of the differences in awareness. All these stages are nothing more than first to get all the extraneous material, get it out of the mind, because they stop you from concentrating, from being aware. Once they're out, then you can intensify your awareness, but it still takes labors. When you get to the meditative state, your awareness is super consciousness, where your awareness of reality is super it's incredible. You can focus in and you almost merge with the object, which we'll talk about later. It's an incredible state of focus. And what that does, it is increases the hookup, the existential hookup that man has. Because remember, where a man thinks, that is where he's at. And what a man thinks about, that is what he is. Interesting. The Bali Musa have can have a field day with this kind of ideas. If you think about materialism, your head lies in, 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 if your head lies in the, the chandelier, that's what you are, you're a chandelier. The Bali Musa would have a field day with these ideas. But in any case, I'm not looking at it from a Musa standpoint, I'm looking at it, of course, from a Hashkofa standpoint, from the existential state of man and how man really relates to everything else, his awareness. Now, how does one get Meditate, this meditative state. And this is the only place I'm going to dwell on how to get, you know, but it's going to be very uh, cursory. How does a man achieve such a mental state? Well, 
there's basically three ways. Basically three ways. The meditative state, which is, the way I define it, focused, intense, focused awareness, okay, is achieved through three variant forms. And this is called the meditative techniques. What are they? It is when an individual fixates his mind or concentrates or when the total focus of one's awareness is either a sound, an object, or an image. And that is how he trains himself to develop. And you go in the beginning. You go from thinking to concentrating. You go to contemplation. And finally, you hit meditation, which is a long, uh, laborious journey. In other words, if you fixate on a sound, and what we usually mean is a repeated sound, or a word or a phrase or even a sound. And that in Eastern doctrine is called a mantram. Mantra is the plural. Um, that's usually called a mantram. Um, in other words, when you concentrate or fixate on that sound, what you're really doing is moving everything else out of awareness and you're trying to zero in as much as you can on that sound. Now, you can either vocalize the sound softly, you can whisper it, you can mouth the sound, or you can even think of the sound mentally. And whatever it is, you repeat it for a certain number of times, and the purpose is to train you to be able to focus in on one mental phenomena, or rather one object, namely a sound. You can do the same thing with an object. You steer at an object, okay? And that's called gazing. When you gaze, you look at something intently. It can be an object, it can be a word, it can be a name of God, it can be anything. Pasuk, doesn't make a difference. What you're doing is the same thing. Remember, this is the meditative technique. Forget about if you meditate on it and you already have achieved meditative state. Something else happens. <clears throat> but this is merely trying to get into the meditative state. These are meditative techniques. In any case, if you fixate upon, if you concentrate upon an object which is external to self, it's outside of you, okay? That's a second meditative technique. And a third medita meditative technique, of course, is called visualizing imagery. When you see something in your mind. So you go from sound to object to image. doesn't make a difference, but it's all basically the same. You are trying to fixate, to concentrate, or to make these things the total focus of your awareness. And in that way, you hope to get rid of all the sensations, bodily and sen sensory, and all the mental activities, thoughts, images, or feelings. That is basically the meditative states. Now, obviously, there's far more that one can say, but I just, just as a, uh, give a sense of completion, that is the way one achieves meditative states. Now, <clears throat> what are some of the meditative goals? Let's assume you've achieved the meditative state. What are the meditative goals? What can you do with it? Okay, you've got this intense focused awareness, which is a very unusual property. What can you do with this? Well, there are many things you can do. I've listed nine, and there are more as we begin to discover what meditation is. Now, what are some of the meditative goals? In other words, he who has achieved this, uh, this uh, ability, this skill, of intense focused awareness. What can he do? Well, first of all, on the way up, 
you can gain control of the unconscious will's productions because you stop them. That itself is automatic. You've actually created a cessation in mental activities other than what you want to do. That itself is very interesting. In fact, they say Avraham Avinu was able to control hearer, and hearer is thoughts from the unconscious will, and he was able to create that. Now, how do you think he was able to uh, uh, get, get the skill to stop hearer? Meditation. Now, but anyway, that's how you do it. Because on the way up, that's really what you have to affect. You have to get the thoughts out of your mind. And that's, uh, you, you know, it's the, the, the conscious will gains control over the, the, the productions of the unconscious will. Thoughts, images, or feelings. That itself is a very desirable goal. Now, the second thing is that what you've gained, it, and I'm making the meditative state the goal itself, you've gained the ability to intensely focus on anything and be aware of it totally. In other words, it's a total mental involvement where you and the thing are just at the border of the dissolution of subject-object relationship. Okay? And that's really where you're at. You're at the border. And we'll see who crosses over. Anyway, uh, you've gained that state, which is very important. In addition, another uh, objective is that as a result of the meditative state, you gain tremendous knowledge of what you're meditating on. And the same idea is the concentration, except it's more profound. And when you leave the meditative state, you've got a profound understanding of what you have experienced. So knowledge, enhancement of knowledge is another goal. Not only that, there's another very important. You have loosened the physical bonds. I don't know if you realize that. When you meditate profoundly, when you've achieved that intense focused awareness, and you have ceased thinking anything else, you have actually loosened the self from its connection with the body. Because the self is connected to the body via its involvement in physical. The more you loosen, the less you have to do with physical, the more separate you feel. And it's actually a feeling. Somehow you don't feel as physical or you're not as interested in physical pursuits as other people. Because you have divested to a certain extent the physical. It's a very important spiritual consideration to loosen the bonds that the physical has. You do that by meditative state. Another one is, and this we come to some of the ideas of karate. Since when, when focused awareness, what it does, it's an existential hookup. But not only that, it is an immense ability to direct it is the greatest power that you have to force the emergence or the release of that which you have internally. The human body has tremendous energies, a great deal of energies, far more than we realize. When you focus concentration on the energies in the human body and you focus it to different locations, that itself changes the nature of the physical act of a karate chop. Or any, or any physical movement. What it does, it invests the physical act not with the mechanics of the act, because that's really what it is. 
you're looking at it mechanically, what's the best way to hit something from a mechanic standpoint. What you're doing is you are inspecting or you are uh, aware of the physical act via the energy levels that you have. And you transmit the energies toward that direction. Therefore, the, the, uh, the physical act is far more intense. Now, there are people who do that just based on concentration. But he who has achieved a meditative state can do it in an enormous way, tremendous way. And there are other metaphysical things that you can direct. There's energy fields which exist outside of you, which uh, you can redirect inside, okay, as a result of focused awareness. Because remember, what you think of is where you're at, is what you're connected to. And if you've achieved intense focus, then you've got access to all the hookups that the intense focus gives you. Now, in addition, another objective is the relaxation response. Because believe it or not, when you are not hooked up to your physical body, you're not as tense. The body is a bundle of tension, a bundle of nerves. Okay? It is a bundle of anxieties. By meditating, you have released the body's hold on you. Therefore, you don't even feel the tension, the anxieties, okay, the pains of the body, the sensations of the body. That itself is a tremendous relaxation feeling. Another objective of the meditative state is that since you focused in so well on an object, you're aware of it, when you leave the meditative state, you can arouse intense emotional states. In other words, if you meditate, for instance, on God, not on a name, but just the entity God, when you leave the meditation, you have been in God to such an extent where it's almost like you and Him are inseparable. It arouses a tremendous amount of emotional feeling, which is the counterpart of the belief that you have, because emotions, by the way, follow the belief. If you think a dog's running after you, you're afraid. Uh, if, uh, if feelings follow the, uh, the uh, cognizance of the mind. <laughs> if you have meditated on God to such an extent where you feel inseparable, there's a tremendous emotional release that comes as a result of that. That is another objective of meditation. Another objective, the eighth, is you have greater perceptual awareness. If you look at something in a meditative state, your perception of that is almost like atom by atom. It's almost, it is such an intimate understanding of that which you gaze at. So therefore you can appreciate a great deal of what you see around you. You've just got that ability to focus in and be intensely aware of a perception. And the ninth idea is you create a greater existential hookup, which is what I had mentioned previously. That's it. You've got nine different kinds of objectives that you can achieve. Each one is unique as a result of the fact that you've cultivated the skill of meditation, which is focused awareness. <clears throat> now, that basically completes our uh, discussion of meditation, of the meditation techniques. We understand the different kinds of techniques, we understand the different states, we understand the advantages, we understand the nature of what these things are to the mind, and we understand the objectives that you can now, or we can all proceed. We now proceed to Jewish meditation.
we are now up to the area called Jewish meditation. Now that we understand what meditation is, we now can enter the portals of Jewish meditation. Now, I had mentioned before that what the Rabbanishim wanted is that man works in all his dimensions and he declare Enoid Muvadoi. Okay? And in that way he retransforms Eilam Hazen to Eilam Now, <clears throat> the Rabbanishim wants man or wanted man to work on the self. But what does that mean? The Shekhinah or the presence of God was manifested to man at a certain time in the history of man. Now, what is the Shekhinah? The Shekhinah is known by another word called the Kovid. When you talk about the Kovid of God, the glory of God, what you're really referring to is his atzmusoy, not literally, because we cannot know his essence, but the way he manifests himself to the world. The Shekhinah is the representation of God as he appears to the Nevroim. That's all it is. The Shekhinah is a Nivra, is a created entity, but it is an entity which is the closest entity to God. And therefore, it can represent God's presence. In other words, if the Rebbe has to relate to you, he will relate to you via the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah, again, is the manifestation or the closest representation that being can have of God. That is what the Shekhinah is. But the Shekhinah is not God. Remember, you do not relate to God. God is unknowable. The Shekhinah is what we relate to, which is the closest connection that, can, that a being can have in terms of the Rabbanu Islam.